Praise God. How's everybody doing this morning? Welcome to Community Church. Well, so good to see so many out this morning in this frigid weather. Congratulations for making it. Well, we've just had an amazing week here with Dean Briggs, and of course, Dean's going to be with us this morning. But uh, we'll hear from him a little bit later, but uh, glory to God. So good to see so many wonderful faces. You know, when, uh, when you have family celebrations, Christmas, vacations, Thanksgiving, whatever it is, when family is scattered, then it comes back together again. It's always joyful. And, uh, and maybe, maybe you don't realize how much you're missed. Maybe you don't realize how valuable you really are. But let me take it from me. I love it when I see your faces. It's so great. And uh, for the lack of time, we, uh, that's all we have, the lack of time. But anyway, God bless you. You know, the chronology of this unfolding redemption plan of heaven coming to earth. There are going to be many momentous events. And uh, the church seems fixated on this one thing, the return of Jesus. But there, there are momentous unfoldings that will happen before that. And one of the greatest will be not the return of Jesus, but the manifestations of sons who are crafted by the grace of God into his image. That the epicenter of the war of the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light has centered throughout church history on those individuals that have come, that have had the audacity to begin to believe. That have had what is in the mind of the religious, the presumption to take the promises at face value. And yet, Jesus said, <laughs> he was bringing many sons to glory. Ah, the message of grace that we've been talking about this week is about bringing sons to glory. It's about fixing in you the realization that the earth will move at the sound of your footsteps when you come into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of darkness will quake when the generation of Jacob begins to arise. <laughs> but as soon as somebody starts to realize who they are, those voices rise up. Say, who do you think you are? The voices of those who live in shame and guilt begins to say, who do you think you are? What kind of perfection are you claiming? And yet they're claiming no perfection at all. They're simply proclaiming the efficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ to make me a candidate for complete and total forgiveness so that I can walk in the terms of the covenant. <laughs> Hallelujah, Father. God, take us higher. Take us into this. Break us out of this myopic examination of our wrongs and each other's wrongs that hold one another in bondage under the cords of criticism and heaviness. I say, Lord, let a generation break out from this place. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name.
break out. You have God's permission to break out in faith. You have God's permission to venture. You have God's permission to step out. You have God's permission to experiment with the kingdom of God. I say, mighty ones, majestic ones, glorious ones will arise from this congregation, from this region. A company unlike the earth has ever seen. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. Just a second. We're going to invite up Dean. And uh, tell you what. There's a, there's a significant value in doing what we just did this week and being a part of it. And I know some of you were part of it online and you weren't able to be here because of the cold and the rest of that. But I, I want to say this, that, that there are mysteries, there are complexities in the kingdom of God and in the covenant and in the administration of the kingdom that we do not understand. And uh, there are things that could be said from this pulpit that can't be said because we don't have the time to say it. We don't have the opportunity. There are things we could begin to open, but they actually take a lot more time than the 40 minutes allotted on a typical Sunday. But I'm telling you the magnificence and the beauty of the revelation of the Word of God. We got a little glimpse this week of the splendor that's there. But there's just so much more. And uh, I, I long, I long to see that crafting of that revelation in your hearts that would allow you to surge forward. Now, just before Dean comes, let me just share quickly this. There's, there's a paradox in these things. And the paradox you know, we're trying to, we look at the scripture, it says, well, you know, are we justified by faith or, do, are, you know, do we have to do all these things? And, uh, and it seems to be some contrary advice. Some of the most contrary advice you ever heard came from Jesus himself. And Matthew actually cites uh, one of these things only verses apart. He literally says the polar opposite. He gives instruction using the words of Jesus, and then he says the complete opposite just a few minutes later well how does that fit how does that work and it brings confusion to our puny little minds but one fundamental kingdom paradox is that two people can do the exact same thing and with one result in being commended while the other is being censured the exact thing this is this is the paradox of scripture david he does things that are not lawful and others are stoned for the very same thing. <laughs> what is this dichotomy? How does this work? It has to do with covenants. It has to do with faith. It has to do with laws that you walk in by faith. Listen to this, Matthew five sixteen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay. Ten verses later, in the very next chapter, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men. <laughs> Otherwise, you have no reward. Okay, so which is it? It's both end. Because he's actually talking to two people on two different tracks. 
He's talking about evil is not what you do, it's the catalyst that caused it to come to light. Man, that, it's just, uh, it's not getting, no, it's not getting clearer, is it? What makes an act evil and worthy of censure is the fact that of where it came from, not what it looks like. And two people can do the exact same thing from very different motives. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. In this mystery is the dividing point between law and grace, between legalism and freedom and boldness. Father, in Jesus' name, help us lean in to the mystery of God. Unfold it before us, Lord. Make it so abundantly clear, God, that we are liberated from the shackles of religious legalism and, uh, and freed from the pride of presumption. In Jesus' name. Anyway, we've touched on some of these things this week. It's been fantastic. I don't know that uh, Dean's going to continue with that or do something entirely different this morning, but Dean Briggs is an apostolic teacher, leader from Kansas City. He's been my friend for a number of years. God brought us together through the battles for Canada, and we've had the pleasure of doing, uh, even just recently, some things together in Iowa, in uh, Saskatoon, in Austin, Texas, and I think we're going to be doing a lot more things together. God is uh, tying us, connecting us at the hip, so to speak, and, uh, and he's just a gift to the body of Christ. Please welcome Dean Briggs. Thank you. Thank you. Please. I'll go on. Come. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I feel so blessed and privileged to be grafted into this church family, to uh, the history of the people, the, the testimony of what God has done over the years and is doing this isn't just a gig to me, right? It's, it's, um, it's special, and I'm, I'm grateful to be here with you again. It's been a while since I've been here, uh, unless I'll blame Mark for that. <laughs> uh, before I get going, Chris, I'm going to ask you to come up real quick and just take 60 to 90 seconds and... Explain why people should watch my course based on the last two or three days. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Again, I shared this yesterday and I'll share it again. Uh, I felt like I went back to biology class. Right, and again, it was grade 10, and all of a sudden, you know, they bring the frog out, and it's the first time you're dissecting a frog, and all of a sudden, they open it up, and it's like, oh, I've never seen this, I've never seen that, I don't know what this is, I don't know what that is. And then everybody's asking the question, what is this, what is this? And it's just a moment where you're, you're in a phase of learning new things. It's new revelation, it's new everything. And so I feel like, you know, uh, I was just saying this to Mark, we need to let everybody know, like especially if this is your first time coming, that you can go online and you can watch all this. But I mean, as you, as you dissect the scripture, right, it's gonna open something new up to you, things you've never seen, and where you've had certain questions that have never been answered, I think those questions are, start, are gonna start to get answered for you. So I'm gonna encourage you to dive into it deeper and deeper, because I think there's question marks and then we skip past to the next thing, 
I think some of your question marks are about to be answered. So don't skip it. Go through it all. That was awesome. Taking him with me everywhere. No, so I, th that's the sales pitch, but here's the deal. It's not on sale. It's free. So I, 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 these courses normally, uh, uh, there's a lot of people that have paid for them, but I felt moved by God for the first 90 days of the year, up through March 30th, this is available free. And I encourage you to take advantage of it. The course is on YouTube. You can go to that address. And if you're the kind of person that likes to have notes, uh, not just taking your own notes, but guided notes, there's a companion booklet and notes on the other slide, if you don't mind popping that back up. Well, hold on. Take, take, take a minute and take screenshots if you want, or uh, photos. But uh, you can download free a digital version of the companion booklet and the notes, and then watch it free on YouTube. If you want a print version, you can download it and print it on your own printer. If you want an already printed version, you can go to Amazon Canada, and uh, they're available there as well. So... Please take advantage of this. I really want to get it out there. Okay. Mark, uh, in his initial comments, basically preached my message for me. So let's pray. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we are, um, I think, time and religion and boredom all converge to dull our sense of the grandeur of God's plan for humanity. And so we do look forward to the return of Christ, but we have these theologies and eschatologies that basically make the pinnacle work of Christ that you, as a criminal, get forgiven. And that is no small thing. It is no small thing that sin can be atoned for. It's no small thing that you could be destined for hell and a man came with such love to redeem you from an eternal sentence and transfer you into out of darkness and into his glorious light. We should spend endless days and the rest of our lives being fascinated and grateful for that right. and peering into the mysteries of that. And yet we have largely made the scope of redemption about you and I getting forgiven. And the truth is, that is barely the beginning of the story. If what he did on the cross only purchased your forgiveness, then the cross is far smaller than we thought. What he did in his death and resurrection is create a platform for an entirely new race to walk the earth, for criminals to become kings, and for you to be transformed from the inside out to such a degree that we don't have to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because we are all given the opportunity to become heaven on earth. Yeah. Now, of course we pray that. I'm not saying we don't pray that. But to realize that we are part of the manifestation of the answer to that prayer. Yes. That heaven would be so 
so permitted and welcomed into the transformed life that like Jesus, he says, the prince of this world is coming, but he's got nothing in me. You ever, uh, uh, as a kid, maybe played with iron filings and a magnet? Yeah. You know, put the little iron filings and you put the magnet under the table and you move it around and it's like, oh, that's so cool. There's this invisible force that has an attractive power. And the, the old nature is magnetized to sin in a way that causes us to not walk in fullness because we're always struggling against the lower nature. But what if what Jesus did wasn't just to die for your sin, but to be raised in a newness of life that just as you die with him, you are raised with him into newness of life. Now, we have to consider the serious possibilities of a picture that Scripture paints where you don't have those iron filings anymore. Where there's not something inside you that the enemy can wave the magnet and you go, oh, I want that. Where instead there is a Holy Spirit inside you and where it was once natural for you to sin, now it is natural for you to live in righteousness. And we have to shift our thinking to, I'm always a sinner struggling with sin, to I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the transformation can be so complete that we are magnetized in other directions. So this is the generation, we, we sang it in worship, the generation of Jacob, those who seek the face of God. The promise to that generation is they're going to ascend the hill of the Lord and they will receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from God. To receive the blessing and to receive righteousness and to ascend the hill of the Lord. In fact, Jacob I shared this. I'm giving just a little bit of an intro so we can move forward. But this idea, and I know Mark has shared on it a number of times, that there is coming a generation that will look at a, a civilization level, a cultural level, distributed among every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth at one time. There is coming a people that bear the marks of Jacob's own transformational story. That's the generation of Jacob. It's not just that Jacob was a man, but that Jacob was a promise. He was a prophecy of a generation to come that will enter into what he got as a foretaste, and yet his life, Paul would later say, all of those stories are examples for our instruction of what's to come. And so when it's prophesied that the king of glory is entering in, he talks about that in relation to the generation of Jacob in Psalm 24. And when he says the, the ascending the hill of the Lord, Isaiah 41, we looked at this, it's the lower nature of Jacob that is given the promise that he will be transformed from a worm to a threshing sledge that levels mountains. 
In other words, we look in the earth and we see, you know, there's this idea of the seven mountains, economics and, and government and religion and family and all these things that the enemy has fortified high places throughout culture in every nation. And part of our mission as the people of God is to ascend those mountains and regain influence and dominance. That's a promise to Jacob. In ascending the hill of the Lord, there is coming a manifestation of the mountain of God that all the peoples are going to stream to. And, Je and the promise to Jacob and Isaiah is, I'm going to turn you from that lower little wormy thing that has no dominion over anything. It crawls in the dirt. It has no higher DNA, and it's easily put underfoot and squished. And instead, I'm going to raise you up to be powerful enough to actually level those mountains of culture. A threshing sledge. Think of that like a rototill. A giant rototill to the size of a mountain-moving power. Who will say to this mountain, move the generation of Jacob? Oh, but it's a mountain. How are we going to overcome it? Well, we may overcome it, and we may just mow it down. So... Now I want to extend this thought that we've been developing into another idea. Because we're, on this, uh, we're in this conversation about generations. And the covenant of God that rolls down through generations. And the promise is the generation of Jacob that will move from the lower nature of Jacob the usurper and deceiver and swindler to Israel, the prince of God who, uh, who has wrestled through those things and fully received the blessing to such a degree that his name changes because his nature changes. And if that is part of the generation of Jacob, then I think we have to also look at what Jacob produces as part of the prophecy of his life for what we are meant to see in history. And here's what I mean by that. Jacob had 12 sons, and they became the pillars of the natural nation of Israel. Why did Jesus pick 12? The ecclesia... Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. It's the root word, ecclesia. There's like two or three copies left of the book, Ecclesia Rising, out there. If you want it, many of you have already gotten it and read it. But I, my point is the, the ecclesia is a more potent word than our English translation of church. So Jesus, in constituting the ecclesia, he picks that number again. Why? Because he's saying what Jacob did to establish the nation of the people of God and the natural, I'm going to establish the kingdom of God with the same number to communicate. There's a continuity between that old story and the new story. Yeah. I'm establishing a new governmental number with 12 guys. And just like Jacob, there's this heavenly revelation that Peter gets of Christ. There's a... There's a uh, I won't go back over some of the stories I've already shared in the parallels between Jacob's encounters with God and, and what Jesus did with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi and at other times. 
But if there is a connection here that we're meant to glimpse in the spirit, then Jacob's 12 sons aren't just, perhaps I'm suggesting, aren't just about the connection to the 12 apostles and the governmental potential and role of the ecclesia, but they also form a template of history itself where from Simeon to Benjamin, you have the generation of Jacob almost lived out like chapters. And Benjamin is the final expression of the generation of Jacob. Okay, do I need to say that again or did that? that the, Jacob's 12 sons are the fruit of his life. And we know that that 12 matters because God builds the nation, the old nation and the new nation, on Jacob's pattern. And acknowledging the significance of that, could there be still more? Where the fruit of Jacob's life in those 12 sons represent what God is producing in the earth, culminating in Benjamin. And here's why I say that. Because Jacob's promise is that generation that seeks God's face, that receives that righteousness, that receives that blessing, that ascends the mountain of the Lord, that threshes the other mountains. Psalm 40, Isaiah 40, Psalm 40, Isaiah 40. Preparing the, the way of the Lord, it says every mountain will be brought low. The necessary ingredient as, as the Lord draws near is there's a great leveling of the playing field and the things that we thought were unassailable heights in culture are going to be leveled. And the low places that have been, uh, you know, perhaps it's uh, victims of injustice and systems of it. There's, there's a leveling of the high places and a raising up of the low places. But the promise to Jacob is you're going to be the vessel that brings down the high places. This governmental authority of the ecclesia is a force of heaven on earth. And so to walk through those 12 sons and to end with Joseph and Benjamin, and Benjamin is the son of the right hand, is to glimpse that what God is doing isn't just creating a prophetic connection between the 12 and the 12, but a chronology of history that culminates in a final expression of Jacob's generation in Benjamin. So <clears throat> here's, here's part of an, another way I see that, and then I'll actually get into the meat of that. Ezra 1.5, when the nation has been devastated, they've lived 70 years in exile, and Cyrus announces it's time to return. There is a, a unique configuration of who returns that is also a glimpse into this dynamic. What you see is the Spirit of God moves there was a political movement through Cyrus, but there was a supernatural movement through the Spirit of God. And it says God moved upon the hearts and 
Judah, Levi, and Benjamin are the ones who returned to rebuild the house of prayer. And the house of prayer is a picture of really the highest eternal purpose of what the church, the ecclesia, is to be the vessel in which we fulfill our high privilege of talking to God and he answers us as a way that all the nations of the earth can be blessed through our intercession. We step into those gaps. We say to those mountains, be brought down. We say to the valleys, be raised up. And an entire atmosphere, a metasphere in a region begins to shift. Injustices are made right. Salvation breaks out. Healings and deliverance and life. And this is the privilege of being the generation of Jacob. But it has a full manifestation in the guy that lives at the right hand. The son of the right hand. So what you have in those that the Spirit anoints to rebuild... Can, you, can, can we honestly, without being, having a critical spirit, can we just look and see that so much of the church just, I think, is being found lacking? The fact that culture is continuing to slide into decay and death is an indictment against our saltiness, our light, our power, our authority, our understanding of our mission, we look around and we say, why is all this happening? God, what are you going to do about it? And he answers, why is all this happening? What are you going to do about it? But we haven't produced people that understand more than their forgiveness. And in fact, if you're in the wrong covenant, you don't even understand your forgiveness. So, this is a part of why Jacob's generation matters because Jacob lives out the dependence on that blessing, the zeal for that blessing, but also the fervency to go to the uttermost limits of its potential in his life. And the ones who restore are praise, priesthood, manifested in the sons of the right hand. Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. There's a restoration of the power of worship to exalt God in such a way that he just does things we can't possibly do, but we really need those things done. And beyond all of that, beyond the utility of it, he's so worthy we're obsessed with pronouncing that. And so there's a people that know how to worship. There's a priestly role that knows how to stand in the gap and intercede. And both of those have a measure of identity and authority that only comes to the people who live at the right hand. Now, that actually should have gotten a lot more amens. So now I'm wondering, are you tracking with me? Okay. About 30% of you. All right. So let's dig in. As if we haven't already. There's a whole thing I can't go into on Joseph, but it has been a perplexing mystery to rabbis for years 
they know that Messiah is the son of David, but they see enough in various scriptures related to Joseph, they talk about two Messiahs. There's Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. Now it's not really two Messiahs, it's two expressions of one. There's the suffering Messiah and there's the triumphant Messiah. And Joseph is the most, there's a number of uh, portraits lived out in types and shadows of other figures that point to the Messiah. But Joseph is, I think a, a pretty strong case can be made. He is the clearest and most uncluttered, uncompromised, total example from start to finish of who Jesus is. The son of favor who lives in his father's pleasure does what his father asks even though it costs him the reputation among his brothers. He has a prophetic dream of uh, the meaning of his life and everything goes backwards from that in suffering and persecution except that is the very thing Philippians says in chapter 2 that because Jesus was made low in all that he endured and all that he suffered and all that he traded in terms of his right to claim his divinity as a man, the God-man, but because of all of that, God has actually highly exalted him and given him the name above all names. And we see Joseph's progression from the favored son of the father to the, the, the rejection and bondage of slavery in the nation that he will one day deliver his people from as a picture of his full identification with us in the plight of our sin and our bondage to sin, and yet that is the very place in which he is exalted to the highest levels of power and authority, and he sits on that throne. So there's a lot to be said about Joseph, but I need to just summarize with that, that Joseph is a picture of Jesus, the favored son who is promoted through his suffering to be the savior of his people. From within Egypt, he had the power and authority to take care of his family through the famine. But if you, and I'm just gonna throw out some verses and others, you're just gonna have to read it. This is all in several chapters, uh, you know, Genesis 30 uh, forward. Starts to be the story of Joseph. Mind you, chapters and chapters are spent on Joseph. Benjamin is not the central character, but there are surprising insights into Benjamin that are meant to inform us. And the first is that Benjamin is actually prophesied by Joseph's birth. If you look in Genesis 30, 24, you don't have to turn there. But Joseph is the first son born to Rachel, the beloved. Jacob went... He wanted Rachel, he was given Leah, and then Bilhah, her concubine, and they start to prosper with many sons, and he gets Rachel, but Rachel's barren, so Rachel gives him a concubine because it's a torment to her that she's not producing sons, 
And so what you have is a picture of the sons that are born under the law and with labor, with effort. In fact, when, when, when Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel and he discovers it's not, Laban's explanation to him, this is not the law of our people. So Jacob got the, the law of bride and labor. He had to work for it. But Rachel was his beloved. But she was barren until sons 11 and 12. The last two sons born to Jacob are at the very end of this story. And when Joseph is born to uh, Rachel, she declares, you shall be named Joseph because God is going to give me another son. So Joseph's birth becomes a type of Christ. And even as Joseph went down into Egypt, we see uh, 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 Scripture describes Jesus as being born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And the first 11 sons of Jacob were all born outside of the promised land under law and labor. They were born because Jacob worked for them and because it was the law of that land. And Jesus was born under that system. He was born under that so that he could redeem us out of that. There's only one son that was born in the promised land. That's Benjamin. Eleven sons were born outside of the promised land. Joseph is finally born to the beloved. And the, and the beloved declares, because of this one, another is coming. And that one's going to be a son of the promised land. That one's going to be born inside the promise. He's going to possess something because of what Joseph secures for him. Okay, so here again we see this culminating story because here we are at the end of history and we've been living in 2,000 years of the history-defining work of Messiah ben Joseph. Isn't it even interesting, Messiah ben Joseph, and when the Messiah came, God saw fit in his poetry to make him the son of Joseph? He wears the coat of many colors, but it's not until the twelfth son the government isn't complete at 11. This is why Benjamin matters as the final expression of the generation of Jacob. You can't mimic. Jesus can't call 12 if there's 11 in Jacob. He calls 12 because Benjamin reaches the number of government that he wants to demonstrate in the power of the ecclesia. Rachel then dies in childbirth. 
Here's part of why I think prophetically that means Benjamin is the final picture. There's not another generation after the Benjamin generation that completes the Jacob generation story. Right? Jake, the, that, that, that part culminates where the beloved can deliver no more children. So it's up to Joseph and, Je- and Benjamin to complete that story. If the generation of Jacob is the final generation, then the way we know that is when someone starts, a generation starts to rise up in the full spirit of Jacob, but they're manifesting the qualities and attributes of Benjamin's story as well. So Joseph suffers for his exaltation and rulership in Egypt. But here's, here's, this is the interesting thing. If you go back and reread the story, I encourage you to. Do you remember, Joseph goes through this whole thing of testing his brothers to see if they've changed. And so there's this back and forth and back and forth that you're kind of in agony for them and you're also thinking, well, yeah, you know, you sold the guy into slavery. But Joseph is very deliberate especially on a couple of points. Finally, there's a time when they're all there. They're pleading for grain. They're all there but one. And he says, I insist that you bring the youngest to me. It wasn't enough to have the ten. Joseph had his eye on the generation that completed the deal. He wasn't just going to deal with the fullness that the the law and labor could produce. There's the son that's born in the promised land, who's the son of the right hand, who's the son of the same DNA as he is, because he's the only one, those two are the only ones born to Rachel and Jacob. The beloved and the contender. They only produce two. And Joseph bears the full burden of saving all of them. And the fullness of that is it is his good pleasure to make sure the youngest son is brought to where he is. See, we have this idea that history is collapsing in such a way that the greatest glory Jesus can receive is if it gets so bad, he finally just comes back and fixes it all. I appreciate that. There is undoubtedly a glory to this fatalistic idea. We can't actually stop any of this. And therefore, the only hope is that he returns and fixes it for us. There is a glory there, but I want you to see What might be an even greater glory? That he could take an entire generation and change them beyond their own ability to think they could be changed, to empower them beyond their ability to understand something like beyond all they could ask or think is a phrase that could maybe come to mind. 
and to do something out of his goodness to say, I really know how to produce a transformed people. I know how to take criminals and make them kings. And I am going to bring that generation to my throne. He's not going to stay over there out of this. And I'm not going to fix it by myself. I have provided everything needed, but I require that he come to where I am. And then what happens, they don't know it's Joseph, but Joseph knows them, and he arranges all of them in order around the table. They go, and Jacob's in torment about giving his youngest son to this, but they all finally go, and Joseph puts them at the table in order of their birth. And they're, they're whispering among themselves, how does he know? How does he know? They don't know him, he knows them. And the youngest is the least important in the family. But Joseph has a story to tell. And so all of them get one portion, but Benjamin gets five. All of them get one change of clothes, but Benjamin gets five. Why five? Five is the number of grace. It's like what it's going to take to bring him to be where I am is going to come with so much grace. It's going to distinguish him among all the other brothers. It's going to bother the other brothers. I don't care. I'm bringing him to where I am. He's going to be in the place of my authority my rulership, my wealth, my supply. I will clothe him with my righteousness. I will supply every provision that he lacks. And it won't just be a little. Where sin abounds in the current culture, grace, grace, grace is going to abound all the more. And Benjamin, the son of the right hand, is the only one that gets in on that deal. It is held out as a possibility and an invitation, I believe, for every generation. But there is a generation of Jacob that will rise up and be manifested in that story where the final fruitfulness of Jacob is Benjamin in grace and authority. Now, let me add one other thing that distinguishes Benjamin. When they go home, there's also a silver cup. And this is good and troubling, but we have to add this. The silver cup is found in the sacks of grain. So they went because there's a famine. They, Joseph loads them up. He loads them up with harvest. But there's a cup that Benjamin must bear. to receive the harvest. And that cup is, in some scriptures, a cup of suffering. When the disciples asked for that power and influence, Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? But it's also, it's not just a cup of suffering, it's a cup of intimacy at the Last Supper. He said, this cup Joseph's cup, 
Joseph, who is Jesus, said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. So fruitfulness, the harvest of the Benjamin generation is gonna come from people that are so caught up to the right hand, their identity is established in grace. They are empowered, they're clothed with righteousness, and they have their eyes on an eternal prize that makes them willing to bear the cup of suffering. Paul said uh, uh, that he was making up that which lacked in the afflictions of others in the, in, the, in the fullness of Christ. There is a generation that will be willing to be lamb-like like the lamb for the sake of the redemption of the world. And it means some will suffer and be glorified and some will be glorified without suffering because I don't know your story and you don't know mine, but when we're all caught up to that realm, we'll all bear the cup of intimacy with him in communion out of a new covenant reality that causes us to consider the afflictions of this present world as not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You even get overtones of Revelation 12 in this because in Revelation 12 you see this great sign of a woman standing on the, the moon crowned with the sun and she's giving birth to a man-child that has authority and the dragon fears that man-child because that man-child is caught up to the throne. That man-child is brought like Benjamin to the throne. And yet that woman is being threatened by the dragon just like the man. And you see echoes of this story of a woman who goes through the child birthing at the cost of her own life for the son who will ascend to the throne. And here's some of the, it's hard for us to, 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 to deal with some of the difficulties of the drama of a person's life that they live in real time as their actual experience but it's meant to prophetically inform us. It's like ah, their life was their life, but God uses that to tell us things. There is no other outside of Joseph and Benjamin. That's the end of Jacob's story. And so, you, you see this in John the Baptist also. John the Baptist was the greatest of those born under the law. And it is declared of him that the least of those born under the new covenant are greater than the greatest of the man who was great under the old covenant. So the least of the new is greater than the greatest of the old. And John lost his head. There was no miraculous resuscitation. Rachel really died. God didn't raise her back up. 
God didn't raise John back up. Some transitions are quite definite. There's a part of us will pray. I started out a few days ago. I started out saying we, we often pray for revival. That's a good prayer. It's a right prayer. The problem is we associate with revival with the last best expression of the thing we want to be revived. There's a lot of people that want a John the Baptist ministry. I appreciate the forerunner. The, there's layers of that. But at the end of the day, Isaiah prophesied there's a son who has to be given and the government will rest on his shoulders. And that picture is Joseph and Benjamin. Because the head is Jesus, but the shoulders are the, shoulders are the body. So the head transfers government. The government will rest on his shoulders. Christ is the head of the body. Guess who is the body? So Joseph's head rests on Benjamin's shoulders. The government rests on this, and so the law actually had to be decapitated. We aren't going to reestablish the law there. We aren't going to reestablish, sorry, the kingdom purpose. God drew a line in the sand, and he said, I'm done telling that story. Everything from this point forward is Joseph's story and Benjamin's story. It's Jesus' story and that which Jesus produces in his body. Jesus was the end of the old nature in the human race. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become righteousness of God in him and yet a son still must come out of that just look at Romans 8 he, he, this is why he, he, he stole my message <laughs> he quoted the very verse that I want to kind of conclude on go to Romans 8 29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many Benjamins. His fullness of purpose for the human race and the reason he is more glorious, more exalted, more worthy is because in all of his exaltation and worthiness, he is so generous as to share his exaltation, power, and purpose with a bride and with many sons. He says, I will not continue this story until Benjamin is with me. And so, to be foreknown and to be predestined is not guaranteed forgiveness. 
it is total conformity. It is forgiveness. My point is it doesn't stop there. I'm telling you, the people that misunderstand the message and settle for freedom, it's really important to, be, to get freedom. But the people that settle there are missing out on riches of glory. Okay, I'm going to wrap up here. And then I want to I want to pray. I don't know, is it possible to get, is it too disruptive? If not, we can just do it kind of symbolically. But is it possible to get all the kids in here? Can we do that? Like how many are we talking? Uh, of all ages? Let's get them in here. Okay, so the son of the right hand. I'm going to end with this thought. The son of the right hand. Now that is a picture of a throne position, okay? But if you are the son of the right hand, this is my right hand, and my son sits here, which hand grasps my right hand? If you're the son of my right hand, left? Thank you, thank you, you all are paying attention. (laughs) For Benjamin to be the son of the right hand means it is his left hand that holds the source, power and blessing and authority. Is it any accident that the story of Benjamin is a tribe that is known for their expert marksmanship as left-handed bowslingers? They were known. 300 of them were known in the entire nation as expert marksmen that were all left-handed men. God is saying, I've got this story that I want you to get. And when you come up to this place and you hold my hand, I'm going to anoint that contact point. And you are going to be mighty for the destruction of fortresses, for the threshing and sledging of mountains. You will touch heaven. You will have revelation and glimpses, ladders and face of God wrestlings, and the earth gets transformed out of this connection that we have. Your left hand becomes the extension of my right hand. That's the privilege of being the son of the right hand. And all of this is wrapped up with a final little kiss from God that the primary voice and architect of all of this reality, this new covenant reality, is a guy named Paul who was from the tribe of Benjamin. (laughs) I don't know how God does this. How does he do this? You want the supreme revelation of our stature in Christ? Go to the Benjamite. Just read everything Paul says about what this covenant produces, what your high calling is, what your purpose is, 
the sons that are coming forth, the older brother that we have in Christ, and we get to be counted among his many brethren. So what I wanted to do is I want to close this generation's summit conference, whatever we're doing. I, I, maybe we're going to have to, I'll move this back. Um, and I want to gather in tears the generations. And I want those under 15 in the middle. And then I want to surround them by those under 40. And then I want to surround those by those over 60. Okay? And so we're going to kind of picture Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to say that those, you know, Gen Z in the middle are going to receive the full blessing of the generations rolling down. Did I skip that? Yeah, you're just out of luck. Sorry. Did I skip that? I'm in that. I'm like, ah. Okay, so yeah, I was trying to do three tiers to not make it too complicated, but 15 and under, I, we'll, we'll, we'll do this a little different. 20 and under, 40 and under, and everyone over 40. Okay? And so I want to ask, ask all the kids to come up, all the kids, and you guys stand. We're just going to prophetically picture the children being placed into a high place. No, let's have them on this. Let's have them up here. All the kids up here. All right, I'm going to talk to the kids for just a second, and then I want to. I know we got to get moving. All right. Hi guys. My name is Mr. Briggs, and I want you to know that you are dearly loved. Your parents, your parents' friends, your grandparents, there are a lot of people older than you that know you have a high call in God. And so the reason you're on this platform is because we want you to know you are invited by God to walk in high places with him. And what I'm going to do is ask basically kind of the generation of your parents to surround you. And then the generation of your grandparents will surround them. And so you are at the heart of, we believe, what God wants to do in dramatic, big, powerful ways. Like, wow. And from the outside in, there's going to be this generational prayer and release of blessing. And what I want to ask you guys, the under 40 start surrounding. And I'm going to say the under 40 can do this part. And the, and yeah. And then the, the over 40, as needed, stay on the floor. Huh? Yeah, no, no. Yeah, everyone else just sit there. No. Yeah, no. But here's what I want to ask and challenge all those that are a part of this blessing.
I want you to take whatever revelation and faith you've gotten over these last two or three days, and I want you to prophesy the righteousness of Christ over them. The, the blessings of the new covenant, the power and promise of the Holy Spirit to rest upon a generation to such a degree that if history could be written in the future, we might just say, this is the final generation of Jacob, the sons of the right hand. So now everyone else stand up and just find places wherever you can. Press in. Okay, so... Uh, we could spend a long time here. I want us to just simply realize we're in a moment of faith where we can pray efficiently. <laughs> Let the reader understand. This is not your 10-minute exhortation. This is 60 to 90 seconds of releasing blessing. Favor of God. The calling and purpose in Christ. So I want to ask, is there an over 40... And, uh, 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 you know, a 30-something, a parent age, and someone a little older who would just represent in prayer. And I'll close this out. And is there one of the young people? I'm going to. Kara's daughter right there. I would like for you, if you feel comfortable with it, to pray and receive the blessing for your generation to walk in it. That's all you have to say. God, we receive the blessing of the generations and the blessings of Jesus, and we choose to walk in them. Could you, say, could you do that? Okay. All right. Uh, Steve, will you pray from the, the old folks? Who's, who's a 30-something that will pray? Ben. All right, I'm going to start with Steve. We'll hand it to, can you get a mic up there for yourself, Ben? We'll start with Steve, go to Ben, end with Bonnie, and then I'll close us. All right? In the name of Jesus, we prophesy over this young generation in front of us that you will have and walk in a covenant of grace, that you will never be bound by the lies of the enemy that says you're loved based on your performance, but that you will recognize that you have a good father who loves you, who has done everything, that Jesus Christ paid the absolute price so that you can walk in the blessing of the Lord and may you know his blessing experience his blessing and may his grace and his righteousness fill your heart explode in and through you and manifest in a blessed prosperous joy filled and obedient life may you experience all the blessings of righteousness through faith in Jesus name we release the blessing over this young generation of that revelation of righteousness by faith. And I just want to say as the middle generation, these things that are moving all the parts around in our brain and we're having to, oh, I think I understand that. 
I declare over you that you will learn in your sleep yeah. the revelation yeah. of this reality. Yeah. That you will wake up and you will talk to us as parents and we will go, that sounds amazing. Yeah. You have it even more than we do. Wow. So I release the blessing of that revelation over you that with the grace of the Lord, you will know it like you know your favorite TV show. I bless you in Jesus' name. Father God, I just thank you that you're going to come into our lives. All the parents, the adults, the kids, the younger children. And God, I just thank you that we receive the blessing. Yes. Yes. There's a path in front of us yeah. that, you're, that you're pouring into yeah. us. God, yeah. that we just the blessing that over our lives, over our family, over yeah. the generations that are coming, yeah. that you just yeah. pour your love on us and yeah. that yeah. we just like have faith in what yeah. you're going to do. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. 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 So good. So good. Just kidding. Now, wait, wait just a second, though. I want you to I, kids. I want you to just look around at the people that are surrounding you. You have times where you will not like what they want you to do. You will have times where you will feel bothered or troubled by the way they are raising you. But I want you to see that these people surround you with love. They would give their lives for you. And they will fight demons and hell itself to see you walk in your purpose. Uh, Casey, did you have a word? Here, Ben's got a, oh, you've got, okay. If you've got it right there, that's great. Yeah, do it on that mic, that's great. I got a baby too, so I'm in my happy place. No, I got the baby. <laughs> you know, during worship, I, I saw the Lord. I saw Jesus walking through the crowd. And uh, he, he represented himself as the gardener, the vine dresser. And, and what I saw was almost like uh, it, when Jesus gets close, it feels like he's always going to prune us. Pruning happens in maturity, but what I saw was the gentleness of the Lord. And just as a seed is put in the ground, the seed can do nothing other than be put in the ground. And I saw that many of you in this room, all of you in this room, have a seed of faith that has been deposited into you. And just like a seed uh, gets watered, I saw Jesus watering the seed of faith in you. The seed couldn't do anything. The seed cannot produce the water. The seed cannot grow on its own. Only the water can produce growth in the seed. So I'm prophesying that there is a water that's coming to the faith that is already existent in you. That, and there will be exponential growth in your faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to close this in prayer. God, just representing these tears of history, the Abraham generation, the Isaac generation, the Jacob generation, and the Benjamins.
God, would you fulfill your good pleasure in all of us? We receive. We receive the blessing. We receive your righteousness. And we are motivated by your kindness to hold close to you, to hold to your right hand, to experience your transforming power, and to go as far as possible in faith and in authority and into identity and into manifesting the kingdom of God on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.